Hello everyone, this is Jeremy, uh, and this is Penny Tolerable, my podcast. And uh, who do we have with me right now? You have uh, Nathaniel, your, uh, what is it, like guest star in residence? Yes, guest, a guest star, but I've never Basically guest star in residence. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, Emeritus. Yeah. Um... Today we have a very interesting uh, episode. Interesting is not, not a good word for it, but uh, we've been doing the, what I call, with a rebel yell, we cry more and more and more, which is, is my cute little term for our Alan Moore episodes. And <laughs> yeah, to finish them off, I thought we would do an episode where uh, I look at all of the movies, I watch all of the movies that have been based on Alan Moore's work. Now, I listen to podcasts such as uh, Struggle Session, and uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin, and... Uh, the Jack Allison Cinematic Universe. Yes, the Jack Allison Cinematic yeah. Universe. And uh, I thought, you know, oh, I'll do the same thing, you know, I'll watch some turkeys, you know, watch some bad movies. How hard can it be? How much of an endurance test can that be? And I realized, it's, it's a big one, I only had to watch about seven movies over the course of, like, I started this idea when I first started doing the Alan Moore episodes, which was maybe three months ago. Uh, it has taken me about three months to recover, like two and a half months to recover from watching all of these movies. Uh, it has just been bad, like, what has been done to this man's work. Um, I guess we should just start in. We should just start in right now with uh, the first movie to be based on his work, which was Swamp Thing, oh. Wes Craven's Swamp Thing. I kind of say, uh, you're talking about the the struggle to get through some of these things, and uh, I feel like, that, I mean, there's no shortage of bad movie podcasts out there, but the difference always seems to be that, like, the joy of it comes from watching it with friends. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, you know, most of them, you watch it with friends, and in some cases, especially now uh, with the quarantine, uh, like... My favorite bad movie podcast, The Flop House. They don't watch the movies together because they're grown ass men, so they just kind of have to meet and talk about them. But I feel like if I were friends with any of those guys, it would be easier if I could then go like, "Oh, this is what uh, I can't wait to hear what you know uh, Elliot Kalin has to say about this yeah. or whatever." It, Jeremy really did not have that benefit. You watch these in just. Horrid isolation, I think. Yes, like yes. No, no one to riff with, no one to respond to. Um, I refuse to watch them. Many of these I have either never seen or never or have not seen since they were first released. Mm. So it's been 17 years since I did Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, that's 17 years too close in my memory. <laughs> and uh, I 
I'll just uh, do this caveat and turn it back over to Jeremy. I do not know why he wanted me to be on this episode. I have nothing nice to say about these, and I promise to be disruptive and make a bad situation even worse. So on that note, Jeremy, what can you tell us? Well, we start off with Swamp Thing, Wes Craven's Swamp Thing. Uh, it's Dr. Alec Holland and the Swamp. He's try, trying to create a new species, a combination of animal and plant. They can thrive in the harshest of conditions. Fortunately, he becomes a subject of his own creation and is transformed by Anton Arcane, who wants the formula and attempts to capture the Swamp Thing. A chase ensues that ultimately ends with a confrontation between Swamp Thing and a transformed Anton Arcane. Now, first off, the first big change that they make is that Matthew Cable is not in this. Uh, he has changed to Alice Cable who is played by Adrian Barbeau. Uh, which I will say, good change. <laughs> it's hard to improve upon a masterpiece, but if they could go ahead and adapt the rest of the Swamp Thing books and just do that with everyone. So, like, when Hawkman shows up, it's Adrian Barbeau. Like, Lex Luthor could be played by Adrian Barbeau. Uh, I feel like, yeah, you could... Maybe not the people who die, because that's sad. Because I don't want that to happen to Adrian Barbeau. But the rest of them are fair game, I think. The Floronic Barbeau. <laughs> the, yeah. The, uh... I, something I noticed while watching this is that swamps look awful to film in. Like, I pity anyone who has had to film in a swamp. Because it's, it's, it's like a, a natural unflushed toilet basically which they can look good on film yeah if you watch like most vietnam movies or deliverance or any number of things uh but yeah it would, would be a nightmare to go film in one i think which by all accounts it is That's yeah why you have things like uh, heart of darkness mm. uh something interesting about this movie uh arcane's kind of head swamp thing trapper uh who's, yeah his his name is ferret and uh he is played by the same actor who played krug the rapist from last house on the left so uh he's in a slightly less uh unpleasant movie uh here so but not I mean, as good right yeah not as good there's a, there's a lot of techno-speak at the beginning. Uh, nothing you couldn't get out of a book, like when they're working in a lab. There's also a lot of very 80s dialogue, like, uh, like uh, who does this guy... Not, he, they don't say this, but it's like, who does this guy think he is? Mr. T? Like, that type of dialogue. Good dialogue. Good, good. Yeah, good dialogue. Um, is... This is this one thing, or is it the sequel that has the immortal? Uh, I guess you had a Twinkie in your ear. Yeah, we'll get to that. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, this stuff when I went Twinkies. Uh, Alec is—he's uh, kind of a perv in this. Like he kisses uh, Alice without permission, without her consent, which would not fly today. Wouldn't fly with Lulu either. No. Um. God, <laughs> uh, it, it does get going rather quickly, which means it ends rather quickly, <laughs> which there's that. Um, yeah, Swamp Thing appears quickly, and 
much like Lou Ferrigno's The Incredible Hulk, he defeats you by throwing you. D doesn't even punch, just throws. Uh, the suit is one of the cheapest suits I've ever seen. It, it, it looks like rubber, and when I say that, like pencil rubber. Um, the... There are so many wipes in this movie, like, not star wipes, but, like, Lucas wipes. Uh, I thought you meant the cast. <laughs> the, uh, the transformation scenes are good, I have to say that. Like, uh, Arcane transforming, and when his, uh, henchman Bruno is poisoned with a, with a mutagen. The movie, quite frankly, is essentially boring. Like I said, it it starts quickly, it ends quickly, yeah. and that's it. Well, let's not undervalue that, however, because uh, as bad as these movies probably are, um, at least they're short. Yes. That's, I, not to go off on a whole tangent, but that's what I always think when I watch bad movies from the past. You're like, well, there's a hundred minutes I'm never going to get back. If you made this Swamp Thing movie today, it would be at least as boring. Look just as bad, but in a different way. Yeah. Uh, really not be a better film to any noticeable degree, but it would be two hours and 40 minutes long. Mm -hmm. yeah. So then we move on to... The second film, the second and last film in that series. In the trilogy? Yeah. Um, is this also by Wes Craven? No, it is not. Oh, okay. uh, he handed over the reins to someone else. It's the return of the Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing returns to battle Anton Arcane, who has a new science lab full of his unmen, uh, and he chooses Abby Arcane as his new girlfriend. I have to say, there is some good in this. It has a cool opening... Because the opening is just panels of John Tuttleman's art from the comics while they play Born on the Bayou by Creed's Clearwater Revival. Yeah. And it is, it's, it's, it's a balls-out comedy. And, uh, it's, it's a comedy. Like, most of the unmen look very cheesy. Mm -hmm. It seems to, it seems to go with, like, the early, very early trauma movies. Before they got too cartoony. Uh, like, you know how uh, Toxic Avenger 1, it's a horror movie. It's not, yeah. like, completely cartoony. That, and I feel like that was Troma's brand when it would be like, okay, this is impossible to take seriously because it's like a skinny guy in a tutu who becomes a weird monster. But then it's also impossible not to take seriously because he's a, a serial killer for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Like... They're too dark to be lighthearted and too silly to be effective as horror films. So they really are in this kind of uh, grungy nether realm, I suppose. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's maybe not the worst possible fit for Swamp Thing. Uh, by the way, is this recording loud enough? Do we need to speak up? I think it is recording loud enough. Okay. We're sorry, we're getting hypnotized by Audacity, so... Uh, I hope that my booming baritone is as annoying as it usually is. Uh, why don't you <laughs> tell is. me about the, the movie then, Jeremy? Um, like I said, it's, it's a little more fun. Um, 
Abby, who is played by Heather Locklear, is in this movie very, very annoying. Like, she never stops talking. And it's supposed to be funny, but it is not. Like, they, they think that her constant chatter is funny, and it just isn't. Oh, that kind of movie, like how in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, like, the blonde lady being scared by animals never gets less funny. Yeah. Okay. I Ar- see what you mean. Arcane, who in the last film uh, is transformed into, like, a warthog creature, then is stabbed by one of his own swords, and then melts and decomposes in the swamp. He's just better somehow. <laughs> like, completely better. <laughs> they, they explain that they, like, found his remains and reconfigured his DNA, but it's such a flimsy excuse. I got better is... I love that so much as an explanation. And uh, actually, it wasn't his own mutagen. What happened was... Uh, you know, one of the, the two kids, like the photography kids from the movie? Yeah. Well, one of them won a call-in contest, and uh, they were going to get an, an elephant as their novelty prize, and the radio station couldn't uh, follow through on that, so they brought in Dr. Arcane and said, uh, well, what, what if we used all of the prize money to transform Dr. Arcane into some sort of uh, warthog-like creature? And he said, I don't remember agreeing to that. <laughs> Again, there are a lot of wipes... Um, again, I mean, like, some Lucas wipes. Uh, something interesting about Arcane, he seems, they don't know where to go with his sexuality. He seems to be gay-coded, but is expressly straight, like, goes after women, yeah. which is interesting. I, have, I, I actually have a soft spot for characters like that, especially now that things aren't just... It, like, it used to be if you had a character like that, even if they slept with a woman, they'd realize they were gay. Yeah. Because right? that's, you know, most people realize they're gay when they're 55. Right? Yeah. Um, some people do, not making fun of that. Yeah. But it's that weird thing about, like, being gay is, a, like, the end of a treasure map or something. Mm. Um, I actually am interested in characters, my favorite by far being, like, Lee Russell from Vice Principals, where they are absolutely coded as gay. Like, he's almost like a stereotype, and the only catch is he seems straight for all intents and purposes. Like, he Mm. just acts like that, but he's alpha as hell. And it's way more than just, like, like gay panic jokes. Like, can you believe this sissy? Like, it's not doing that by any means. It's just, like... The same way, like, you'll meet gay guys who are just, like, come off as straight as hell, and yeah. vice versa, and, you know, it's true for women as well. I, I like when people sort of acknowledge that that's a thing that exists. Yeah. Um, there's a scene, it's an arcane scene, where they pan over to a painting of him, and it's almost like a Dorian Gray-esque thing they're doing. Um, and when the lightning flashes, you see the skull instead of his face and it's a cool effect but they do it for so long it's like it's it's literally like 20 seconds which doesn't seem like that long but it is oh my no i'm like a movie or a show 20 seconds is an eternity yeah it's in, in this movie um we need the comic relief so we have kids and of course since this is an 80s movie 
we have the token fat kid. Same as Goonies, same as the Monster Squad. Yeah. You know, we had, what was his name, uh, Chunk in the Goonies? I want to say yes. It was Chunk in the Goonies and it was Horace in Monster Squad, who sadly passed away. Mm-hmm. So, um, interesting thing, all of the henchmen wear very kicky orange jumpsuits that I like. Very bright jumpsuits that look really nice on them. Courtesy uh, of Deep 13. Yeah, courtesy of... Swamp 13. <laughs> um, well, another thing about the comedy, there are two attempted rape scenes against uh, Heather Locklear's character uh, in this movie, and they are basically played for laughs. Like, both scenes. And... One rape scene played for laughs is questionable. Two is like, you guys really need to do some editing in this. Yeah, and I don't know if we want to open that kind of worms. I think the the only way to get away with that sort of thing is when the joke is that the rapist is bad at it. So, like, the opening to Eric the Viking and the scene in Old Boy when he, he sees basically the first woman he's seen for about 15 years. Like, those are both uh, attempted rapes, so it's not super charming. But but there, it softens the blow because, like, the joke's on them. It's like they hit him, make fun of him. It's like, oh, I suck, I'm sorry. Like, the uh, it, it, I don't think it ever comes off as funny when, like, the implied humor is like, uh-oh, better be able to run in those heels. Like, yeah. It's, it's less charming, I think. Yeah, it's like in there's a scene in Kick-Ass Two, where uh, uh, the bad guy motherfucker. Jeremy, I thought we were talking about good comic movies <laughs> in this episode. I'll get to those. There's a scene in uh, Kick-Ass Two where motherfucker he wants to rape Kick-Ass's girlfriend, and you know he takes it out, and he can't get hard, and that's the joke. Like, he's like, just, just hold on, hold on. And what a joke it is. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the joke. And Again, yeah. I'm not even saying that those things are necessarily the funniest jokes in the world, like I'm a connoisseur. I'm just trying to think of, like, the one or two times this has been done where it wasn't contemptible. Yeah. And the, the uh, filmmakers seem to be going for that tone rather than just, like, you know, kind of a weird leering approach to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a there's a scene where Swamp Thing has been blown up, and he reforms himself in the drain of Arcane's headquarters, and he comes out the bath like the 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 faucet, and he reforms in the bath, and he walks through the house, and they film every goddamn step it it's like that line in mst uh just film it all ed like the when they're doing the ed wood movie uh something that made me that has always made me smile there's a cast member in the cast he plays a scientist and his name is ace mask ace as an ace like we're playing all aces and mask is in the where the thing you are in your face. Um, 
I think it's pretty clear that his parents were huge Jim Carrey fans. Yes. Which is why they changed their last name in addition to giving him that first name. <laughs> yeah. Um, I assume he was one of the better looking cast members, even though he's <laughs> like, kind of like a hunky scientist. No, it's a uh, very Trace Bolliuian oh. scientist. Uh, not to, to, I'd look. Not to go any, go again. Not to say anything bad about Trace Bolliu. Well, J- Jeremy, uh, we each have our own taste. There's no right or wrong. And I, for one, thought that Mask was smoking. Okay, next, um, we have a, the appearance by the one of the f- most famous characters. In Swamp Thing, the sex yam. They yes, the sex yam that he pulls <laughs> off of himself and feeds to Abby, and it's um, we, we have that scene. When I saw, I looked over at your notes and saw that it's it says the famous sex yam makes an appearance. For a second, I was like, well, Jeremy watches a lot of weird shit. I guess sex yam was like. A grindhouse star from Hong Kong? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even put that together, I thought. That's not the weirdest alias anybody ever used in the movie. Yeah. So, yeah, sexy am and ace mask make out. (laughs) Yeah, the... In the end... (laughs) They have Ultra 7's approval. (laughs) In the the end, the, the kids are fun, like... The kids are all right. The kids are fun. The kids are all right. And like like I said, uh, these movies, it's not even an hour and a half. So we're lucky about that. It's short and sweet. Uh, it has a very Django Unchained ending because it's a plantation getting blown up yeah. by our hero and his girlfriend. And of course, this movie contains the immortal line... What, did you have a Twinkie in your ear? Yeah. It's... Sorry, I got a lot of play for kids of a certain age. Does it really... What What was the one thing where it says, like, why don't you take the dildos out of your ears? Was that Mad TV or something? That, was something, that sounds yeah. very Mad TV. <laughs> exactly as clever as this movie. Um, so, which one did, would you rate higher, the Wes Craven or the Les Craven? The Les Craven. Really? Because he looks better. Like, the suit looks like Swamp Thing. Okay. The branches and the leaves and, and I shit. I don't even everything. know what. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what. Um, yeah, it's uh, Wes Craven. I won't say anything bad about him. He died, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like Wes Craven, but he's not bulletproof. If you show me, like, uh, I, I've seen them all, basically, but if you came to me and said, hey, I got a John Carpenter movie, I'd go, oh, okay, I'm in good hands. This is going to be fun. If you came to me with a Wes Craven movie, I'd go, oh, this might be fun. Yeah. Like, I, you know, made some excellent movies, but, uh, you know, let's not pretend that it was batting a hundred, so. Mm-hmm. And every now and again, you get those weird shorts Oddball sequels, which uh, are sometimes better than the originals. I will say, you, you said that they basically took Swamp Thing and turned it into a comedy. Yeah. That seems like what they did with most comic book movies pre-21st century, I guess. Yes. Like, I, I, I guess, like, 
I don't know. I was about to say the Tim Burton Batmans try to be more serious, but they don't. Yeah. The first one is uh, has like a lot of humor in it. It has you know Michael Keaton hanging upside down on his exercise thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Batman Returns is just legit funny as hell. Yeah. And then the Joel Schumacher ones aren't funny, but they're clearly trying to be. So, I, I mean, the like Superman movies are stupid as hell. Yeah. So. Mr. Luthor, got your stick, Mr. Luthor. Yeah. Uh, these these days, I you know uh, again maybe have gone too far in the other direction. Uh, these things take themselves a little seriously. I guess I am fascinated by the fact that throughout you know seventies, eighties, nineties. The approach to making a superhero film was, what is this shit? Oh, God, do kids read this? Whatever. That's a stupid costume. We're going to make fun of that. Yeah. Which, like, as a younger man, I was like, hey, hey, show some respect. Wolverine fought in World War II. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you know, I wanted them to take it more seriously. And I now feel like if you had come to me in 1985 and told me, even if I were an Alan Moore fan, and you told me to make a Swamp Thing movie, I'd probably, like, take the money and then go, okay, how can I make this as stupid as humanly possible? <laughs> yeah. So, it, it's like, hey, if you want a good Swamp Thing story, a uh, bunch of comics. <laughs> yeah. If you want to see Adrian Barbeau in the Swamp, that's what this movie's for. Mm-hmm. So. We, uh, it, it, it's, after this, we do not have any Alan Moore-based movies for a long time, until like uh, maybe nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, when we get From Hell. It's, it's it takes place in eighteen eighty eight London. The prostitutes are living in London's horrible East End and being killed by Jack the Ripper. And the Scotland Yard inspector Aberlene and his friend uh, Sergeant Godley they investigate and course they they think that the guy has medical training but they don't think he's a man of education or class because of how horrible these are and Averline has these drug-induced visions he smokes opium and he drinks absinthe and uh you know he, he finds the, that green drink yeah he finds links between the killings the freemasons and the senior ranks of Scotland Yard and the people in the medical profession. And uh, Aberlene falls in love with Mary Kelly, who may or may not be the Ripper's last victim. Now, between... Because the Ripper's still alive is what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Now, between the last episode and this episode, I read From Hell, and I don't think I absorbed all of it because much like a lot of Alan Moore's work, it's pretty dense, but I did like it. Um, this is a completely different story. It stars Johnny Depp before he got all leathery. Uh, now, it's funny you should say that, that he had not yet become leathery, and yet he appears in a film with leather apron. <laughs> <laughs> oh, leather apron. Wrong. Oh. Are you an apron? Yeah, Um, there, there is a nice touch of evil shot in the pub at the beginning. Um, this film is one of the few Alan Moore-based movies to feature Jason Fleming, who I think is good in anything. 
he plays uh, the Ripper's coachman who has one and a half ears. And, uh, yeah, one of them is, like, cut off at one point. Uh, that, just, that just tickled me, because if I told you, like, oh, like, my friend has a half an ear, you take that to mean that, like, his other was fine, he's just missing half of one. But then he shows up, it's like, nope, exactly. He has a quarter of the ear allotment that the rest of us do. <laughs> yeah, Jason Fleming has a wonderful sweaty charm uh, in a lot of his movies. He's one of the only things I like about uh, uh, X-Men First Class. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like that movie. I People are like, oh, that's that's like one of the better ones. Yeah, like relatively, it's not good. It's not worth watching. But uh, it, yeah, whenever Azazel's on screen, whenever Azazel's not on screen, the rest of the Hellfire Club should be going, where's Azazel? Yes, Sebastian Shaw literally says, where's Azazel? Oh, he does. He does. Okay, he they got says my note that. Okay. Uh, now in this movie, there's a lot of Masonic imagery and mumbo-jumbo. Mumbo-jumbo. Uh, um, Godly is played by uh, Robbie Coltrane, who, if you've read the book, probably should have played Aberlane. Yeah. He, uh, and that's one thing, and it's not just the book. I think it's historically accurate. Aberlane is presented as a bit more of like a... I, I wouldn't even say fat, but like a, like a bulldog sort of guy. And an older gentleman, whereas uh, Depp is... Restrained in this, he's not in his full like Tim Burton, Captain Jack mode, but that just means he's still kind of in his Don Juan mode. Yeah, uh, uh, Alan Moore actually called him in this movie an absinthe swilling dandy. Yeah, I can't help but notice that uh, between Jason Fleming and Robbie Coltrane, we now have uh, two actors who have played indescribably ugly CGI uh, Mr. Hines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if you take it, if you take this movie away from its source material, it is a pretty solid, chilling film. Like I was legitimately enthralled. Um, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Some of the close-ups, you can see Depp's tattoos, which a person of his kind would not have tattoos. In the Victorian era, that was only Montebanks and Nerdy Wells that had tattoos. Um, Ian Holm, who I think it's Ian Holm that plays uh, <coughs> the Ripper. Yeah, Bilbo Baggins himself. Yeah, he he has a very tasteful nude scene at the end. Oh, he does. He does his fan dance to distract Aberline <laughs> and make this get away. I'm not kidding. He's he's nude at the end. They they give him a lobotomy and he is naked and drooling. In an asylum cell, you you know he covers himself up with his hand. But well, then why did you tease me with it so much? It's weird, but um, the 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 weird thing about this film is at the end they have a Marilyn Manson song over the credits, and that is kind of misplaced. <laughs> like it's it's okay, a, a bit, and uh, it's interesting because at the end of uh, the book, if you have not read it, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, um, uh, Aberlene is disgusted by, you know, what's happening in Scotland Yard, and he quits, 
and he considers going to America and becoming a Pinkerton. And in the movie, what happens to Aberlene is he dies of an opium overdose in an opium den. Now, if I had the choice of doing those two things, I would much, much rather die of an opium overdose yeah. in an opium den. Yeah, I, that's one thing. Uh, I mean, it, it's a real man, his real life, and he's long dead, so I won't judge him. But I will admit, uh, reading from hell... You know, half fictionalized. Uh, Aberline does come off as you know a likable, uh, well-intentioned, but a bit of a fuddy-duddy. But you know, clearly a sharp man and one who has people's mm-hmm. best interests at heart. And then reading the appendices where it says that he had a like a thriving career with the Pinkertons, it it's depressing. It's like if you had a a story set in you know world. Uh, if you had a story set in nineteen twelve. And uh, he just had, like, this really heroic figure, this kind of uh, noble, uh, landed gentleman as your hero who takes care of people and looks out for them. And then there's a postscript that says, and he became a Nazi. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> Terrific. If you think we're going too hard on the Pinkertons, look them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I, I don't know. Uh, may I throw in my uh, my two drachmas there? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I do take issue with... The two cents that you're going to put over Aberlene's yeah, yeah, eyes. Precisely. Um, I do take issue with a few of the things you said. Uh, you said that the Marilyn Manson song was uh, misplaced in the credits. Mm-hmm. Um, I disagree with that because it implies that there's a good place for Marilyn Manson songs. <laughs> Uh, as far as the rest of the movie, um, I, I'll at least concede, uh, it's not bad. Like, I don't, it's not badly made. It's, like, good God compared to what we're about to talk to next. Yes. Uh, it's not a particularly bad movie, but that's what I've noticed. Every, this sounds precious, perhaps, but everybody I know who likes the movie, and it's not a lot, because this is one of those movies no one ever talks about yeah like it's never on tv it like nobody has the dvd it never comes up in conversations like th- this is like the what else came out in 2001 this is like as famous as the musketeer yeah starring tim roth uh i love tim roth um everyone the, does smart people do wise people do mm-hmm. uh yeah this movie um the few people i know who've a, seen it and be like it. It's people who haven't read the comic, uh, which is fine. Like, I, I love movies based on books I have never read, nor will ever read. That's, yeah. That's totally fine. Um, but that speaks to the divide there, because it, the movie itself doesn't bother me, and it apparently gave Eddie Campbell a paycheck, so all to the good there. Yeah. But you did take arguably the best comic ever written, like certainly on the short list there, and you turned it into an okay Jack the Ripper movie. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my problem with it is the connection to the comic would be its only selling point for me. We did a movie of the best comic ever. If I didn't know that, if I went into it blind and you just said like, hey, you want to see a Jack the Ripper movie? I'd be like, not not in a rush. No, like I could see time after we, time. Yeah. And... Okay, well that's cheating. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, we've got enough 
Jack the Ripper movies. You're welcome to do more, but we're, we're not hurting for them. And uh, Again, taking away everything that made the comic the comic, and it's just a story about you know the Queen's royal physician is Jack the Ripper. You know, the theory's been expounded upon. It makes me think of uh, Homer talking to Troy McClure in yeah. the bar. The, That's a pretty good idea, Homer, but I think they already made some movies about World War II. Oh, okay. What about Dracula? Like, yes. Yeah. That, that's me, like, wait, wait, Jeremy. What if we made a movie about Jack the Ripper? <laughs> Come outside, Dad. Um, so that, that's, it's fine. Uh, it's neither good nor bad to me, and so that's probably fitting that it has simply dropped off the face of the earth. If there was a curse so that every available copy of this movie was erased from film and digital libraries across the world, I think it would be another seven years before anybody noticed. Yeah. yeah. So we go from, uh, I don't know, Obscurity to infamy. Yes, we we now go to Jesus, Buddha, and Allah save us. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or LXG. Let's stick with that because it suits the... Um, uh, yo, LXG. Yeah. yeah, like, this is the XFL yeah. to the real comics NFL, so let's... Wherever possible, let's let's use LXG, uh, both for disambiguation and uh, just as an insult to remind yeah. them that they named it that. Yeah. yeah. It's, of course, the plot is that the Phantom is trying to start a world war, which we have two of. This is before we have the two. And uh, he's got advanced weapons, and he also has, it says extreme cunning, but I don't believe that. Wait, I'm watching what, the movie. Where does it say extreme cunning? Right there. Oh, so in a note that you wrote? I took it from something. I thought that was like from his Larry Hama bio card or something. And he's he's tricking the countries into suspecting into uh, suspecting that each other is that, that they're attacking each other. And uh, uh, Alan Quatermain is uh, sent to track down a group uh, of. Uh, you know, extraordinary gentleman. Did you actually have to search for the phrase extraordinary gentleman? No. <laughs> Demonstrably no. Uh, he, Alan, Alan Quatermain assembles a group that includes Captain Nemo, Nina Harker, not Nina Murray, uh, Rodney Skinner, not Holly Griffin, Dorian Gray, Tom Sawyer, and Dr. Henry Jekyll, was also Edward Hyde, and soon into their adventure, they discover that the Phantom is uh, actually more than he appears. Um, getting into this movie, this movie is, it's almost as lucid as a Tex Avery cartoon, like an early Tex Avery cartoon. Yeah, Tex Avery cartoons are much better directed. Because reality doesn't seem to have rules in this movie. Like, scenes don't connect with each other. Like, even though they're put together yeah. one after another, they don't seem to connect with each other. And it's puts me in mind, uh, for example, the Nautilus, which is, I assume, meant to be like the size of an aircraft carrier. Yeah. That's how it's presented. Pops up out of the 
canals of Venice, which are about as wide as a pedestrian street, mm. um, which, because the movie looks so bad, you don't know if it was a stupid thing somebody wrote or an ugly thing that somebody drew. So if something happens, you're like, wait, was that like a bad idea? Or did I just misunderstand what was going on because the special effects look like such god-awful trash? And, and again, like I'm not making fun of this for having dated special effects. The movie came out in 2003. I'm making fun of it because the effects in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen look worse than they did in those Swamp Thing movies you started with. Yeah. Like, th this is, relative to the era it came out, this is one of the ugliest, cheapest-looking blockbusters I've ever seen. It looks yeah. like it looks like somebody made an actually passable League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, and then this is the Asylum's version of it because all the characters are public domain. Yeah, God, this thing sucks. It's it's it stars Sean Connery and is produced by Sean Connery, so. and is also the reason Sean Connery retired. Yes. Thankfully, he made, what was it, Sir Billy, The Guardian of the Highlands? Yeah, that, which is a much better movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm not know, lying. No, I'm so glad that Sean Connery was able to, like, he didn't end on a down note. His career trajectory swung up somewhat at the end there. Again, I'm thinking of the mystery science chart where they compared Neil and Sean Connery. Yeah. And the one point where Sean dips below Neil is when he makes Highlander 2. Yeah. Um, it is, the villain is... Uh, called the Phantom with an F. So I don't know if it's supposed to be Phantomas, the genius of evil, or Eric, the Phantom of the Opera. You know, I think either one of those is probably uh, like a valid consideration and might be accurate. Given how the rest of the movie comes off, Occam's Razor, I think they didn't know how to spell. Yeah, there's always that. Um... They can't decide on how to pronounce Alan Quatermain's name, whether it's Quatermain or Quartermain. Like, everyone has a different pronunciation of it. Well, it, my understanding is that, like, Quatermain would, was how it's supposed to be pronounced, like, kind of a soft, long A. And, like, like his name is meant to sound how Alan Moore would have pronounced it, coincidentally, like, Quatermain. Um, but yeah, as Americans, we, we want it to be like, like equator is in the equator. And then they figured we're dumb. So they're like, let's give it an R in there. So the people pronounce it right. Even though that's not the guy's name. Yeah. And the, the fight scenes with Sean Connery are hilarious because you look at these, uh, <laughs> stunt performers who are like most stunt performers are just superhuman. And just to, the the image of letting Sean Connery win a fight with you is hilarious. Well, uh, old Sean Connery. Old like, Sean Connery, not I like, mean, not Dr. No era Sean yeah. Connery. He was, this guy, oh, that's the thing. Like, this guy was a bodybuilder, and even in his James Bond days, he had, like, this kind of pantherine athleticism to him. Uh, not now, not in 2003. Yeah. Um... They shoehorn in so many references. Uh, Ishmael is in there. He's in the comics, but they never say, call me Ishmael. They just have Ishmael. Yeah, 
Uh-huh. And they just call him that, and because that's the only, like, that the Bible are the only Ishmaels anyone would ever, like, think of. So they know that if you put in a, a seaman named Ishmael, people will go, oh, from the thing. Yeah. yeah. They put in the golden gun, which Dorian Gray uses at one point. Uh, he shoots a person several times with it, and Bond nerds will remember the golden gun only has one bullet. Oh, yeah, so they can't even get that right. Yeah. So it's it's just like their shout out. So it's like, hey, I bought you some new compact disc from the Fu-Tang Clan. They're your favorite hoppers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. of course, there's a line we got here quick, not as quick as Phileas Fogg, around the world in 80 days. It's like, okay, we know who Phileas Fogg is. Just... Yeah. And, and like, <laughs> also, if you don't... It doesn't matter. You you are not allowed to do footnotes verbally. This is some Mel Brooks shit right here. If a character said something, then turned to the camera and went, and like, okay, this scene, like, we got here faster than Phineas Fogg, a Phineas Fogg around the world in 80 days. That is as ridiculous as Dave Chappelle going like, a black sheriff, why not? Worked in Blazing Saddles. It's like, that took me out of Robin Hood Men in Tights less than Sean Connery's line took me out of this movie. <laughs> yes. Alan, <laughs> when they're guiding him down into the lower pits of their base, the where the base is, he goes, what, are we going to Australia? It's like, for the great white hunter, for the great adventurer, you're kind of whiny. <laughs> Must you rag on everything we do? We meet the Invisible Man, uh, Rodney Skinner. They couldn't use Dr. Griffin because of legal disputes. Uh, Universal Studios owns him, and this is 20th Century Fox. So we get Gentleman Thief Rodney Skinner. The effects are atrocious. Yeah. Um, I, I would settle for some, like, lost skeleton of Cadavera. Yeah. Like... That episode of Freakazoid with Invisibo before they animate it well, so they animate the strings. Yeah. Yeah, just a, a fez on a string would have done just fine for me here. There's there's so much talking in this film, which I don't mind, but the dialogue couldn't be worse, so I do mind. Like, the line, Does the vampiric sucking of one's blood seem exotic to you? Just stuff like that. Uh, we have, it turns out that the villain, the Phantom, who is, uh, uh, James Moriarty, he's played by Richard Roxborough, who is pretty good at playing, uh, villains in horrible Victorian films. Uh, you should, if you want to learn more, you can see Van Helsing or Moulin Rouge. Uh, again, Tom Sawyer is in this, he's a character. They, they just... It's grown-up Tom Sawyer, so I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Uh, Jason Fleming is back as uh, Jekyll and Hyde. There's the campiness of Dorian Gray. Like, Dorian Gray has always been at least bi-coded. So there's, whenever people play him, there's always the camp factor. And it's almost fun, but not... Uh, he actually gives Hyde a, a look, kind of a look, which actually makes sense because they're the two debauchers of the group. Um, but enough pondering. 
there is a line in this movie uh, when uh, Tom Sawyer and Alan Quater main and Mina, Mina who is a vampire lord in this, um, she she turns to a big thing of bats and flies away and attacks a thing of a bats. big yeah a big thing of bats on a series of bats flies away and attacks uh, the Phantom's men. And Sean Connery says, that vampire lady has us covered. And it, words fail me that that is a line in a movie. Yeah. I'm hoping that, like, uh, no time soon. Like, God bless the man, for the most part. But sooner or later, he is going to end up on an Oscar memorial reel. And they're going to have to go, like, okay, do we want to remember old Sean Connery or young Sean Connery? How do we bookend his filmography? Do we go to the beginning or the end? And there's like it'll be like the chubby kid at the end of Watchmen, like trying to make up his mind. Mm. And yeah, somebody will be like, for God's sake, just pick a clip. We need to put it in the memoriam reel. And then column A is Bond, James Bond, the first and best reading ever when he's at the table and Doctor No. And the other one is that vampire lady has just come. <laughs> What about your monitor, Beck? Um, and I, I hope when that day comes that uh, as he's getting a you know, national service in Scotland, that that's how we choose to remember him here. There's uh, For some reason, everyone can throw knives in this movie, but no one's good at it. <laughs> like, nobody can hit their mark. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Hyde saves the day. He has to turn into Hyde to use his strength to turn off a machine. And, uh, we, whenever we see Hyde's reflection, it's Jekyll. Whenever we see Jekyll's reflection, it's Hyde. And when Hyde, you know, does his heroic deed, we see Jekyll just go, Good job, Edward! And it, for all the world, when I saw this, it reminded me of a line... In uh, Garth Ennis's Rifle Brigade comics, give my John Thomas a rub. That oh. never used to. Like the, sort of simply down. That's all I could think of. And at the end, there uh, in, I believe, Mongolia, like the snow caps of Mongolia, where Skinner, who they thought is a turncoat, ends up walking into their cave. Speaking of turn coats, what is he lacking? A coat. Yeah. How does this naked dude just survive in the snow? I don't know. And he he says that he's been in Moriarty's base, where they're replicating all of their powers and equipment. And, uh, you know, he says, you know, they're even doing you, Nemo. And Nemo says, they've made another Nautilus. And he says, not a lie. I saw about eight of them. And I'm like, where are you fitting eight Nautiluses? <laughs> Wasn't the first one that'd be the size of an island, more or less? It's basically, yeah. So, and then Nemo says, I'm seeing double eight Nautiluses. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the fact that Dorian Gray, if he looks, in, in this, if he looks at his picture, it undoes it, it undoes the spell, and he gets old and dies. Yet he has his picture in his gallery in his house, so make of that what you will. Now, is the 
If the picture is destroyed, does that kill him? Yeah, I think that was in the novel, if the picture is destroyed. No, it's it's not. <laughs> like, in the novel, they just, he just gets killed, and then they find the picture got ugly, and he stayed youthful. Like, they, it, it's not like a, like a secret weakness of his or anything, because the, the novels, that's not really the vibe of the novel. If they want to make up rules, then that's fine, but... I'm kind of with you. Like, if he has to keep it safe but can't look at it himself, like, just a vault somewhere, right? Yeah. Not, not, not like a, a curtain. Like, uh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Gray, uh, we're all done. It's set up over the mantel piece. What, what would you like for covering? We've got, like, some nice thick canvas that we use in uh, the circus. I'll take cheesecloth, ducky. <laughs> I mean, it won't cost any extra. I'll, Get out of my house. <laughs> we there's a line in this in about the middle, about the second act, where we see uh, uh, Captain Nemo worshiping a statue of Kali, the goddess of death, and uh, Amina says, "Can we really trust a man who worships death?" And this is coming from a vampire, by the way. Yeah. So again, nothing makes sense. Uh, I do like the touch of making the characters actually racist, though. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, I, I like the uh, the League comic to a point. Maybe we'll discuss that some other time. I think I said before that uh, I it, it maybe hasn't held up the way some of this other stuff has, in my opinion. I mostly like the comic version of Nina, but when I look back at her, I'm like, well, this this is charitable. Like, mm -hmm. more just really wanted to have, like, a 1960s-era libertine Philly as his main character, and more or less glued that onto a prudish white Victorian woman. Yeah. So, uh, uh, anyways. Uh, Skinner ends up being, he, he survives being, uh, hit by flamethrower, like, the flames of a flamethrower, like... Full on once upon a time in Hollywood, and in the next scene when they're burying the dead, Alan Quatermain, he's just better. So he's 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 tougher than Mina and Dorian. Well, Arcane found his DNA and was able of, to recombine oh. it. Yeah. And there's a scene where all of their uh, Moriarty's making away with all their DNA and serums and stuff like that, and uh, he gets shot. God damn it. And he drops the container full of everything into the water. And I always thought to myself, wouldn't the fish at that part get legified? Like, wouldn't there be vampire fish and, like, hide fish and invisible fish? Well, there are invisible fish, Jeremy. Really? Yeah, you just can't see them. Oh. The movie, the movie adorably sets up a sequel. Where you see uh, Alan's grave rumbling, and I just love when movies do that. It's it's so cute. Oh God, yes, and it's funny. The movies that end up having sequels are the ones that always uh, shot shoot themselves in the foot, like like closed doors on things. So it's like. 
the reasonably charming Men in Black movie comes out, and then when it's successful, they're like, okay, hope you like a, watching us spend 70 minutes getting Tommy Lee Jones back to where he was at the, in the first movie. Yeah. Like... And getting Linda Fiorentino out of here. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the best. The, the guy can have an, and literally half the running time devoted to his journey. But the woman says, hey, she just like corpses. She went back to work. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, it's the, in fairness, good and bad movies, both will sometimes kind of be angling for that, that World Crime League follow-up. Yeah. Sweetie, it's... it's not happening, which leads to the weird thing among fans, where just because a movie did set up a sequel, it therefore it deserves the sequel. Where it's like, hey, like I bet we all wanted to know what the bigger problem was at the end of the Super Mario Brothers, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, like no, like that. That's emotional blackmail. Just because they ended on a cliffhanger, doesn't mean that you have to follow them over the cliff. Uh, uh, God, do you have anything to say about League? Don't watch it. It's not, it's not even fun in a, it's not even bad in a fun way. It's, uh, it is legit atrocious. It, it embodies the idea of taking something halfway charming, like a decent enough original property. I remember when Alan did the comic, he even said, like, I can't believe no one's done this idea before. It's like, well, well, tons of people have. Kim Newman actually did it earlier and better than Alan did, quite frankly. But it's every choice is the wrong one. Every decision that they take, it's like, oh, well, Mina doesn't actually do much in the comics. Maybe she could have some Dracula powers in the movie. Not inherently a horrible idea. Awful in execution. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Invisible Man, it's not going to be Griffin, and realistically, like, Griffin is just an unspeakable monster of depravity and, like, maybe shouldn't be on the good guy team anyways. That's what the second volume of League is about. Yeah. Go ahead and make it an Invisible Man. In fact, a Gentleman Thief sounds fun. But remember, he also has to suck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my closing thought, and this is not meant as a dig against the guy, has Richard Roxburgh ever been in a good movie? I can't remember him being in a good movie. Yeah, and a very good friend of mine is probably going to throttle me if she hears me say that about Moulin Rouge, uh, which is neither good nor bad. <laughs> Insanity is without morality. But, yeah, to be the guy in this and the guy in Van Helsing, which... Uh, oh, well, let, let's do that before we move on to a blessedly better film. What's worse, this or Van Helsing? This. You think so? Yeah. I don't disagree, but what would your reasoning be? Um, Van Helsing is goofier. Okay. Good goofy. No, 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 not going to give you that. It is, it, it is less boring, maybe? Yeah. I get, good God, this is how the difference comes down to in my mind. Um, The color palette of this movie seems to be garbage, lager, green, brown. Mm -hmm. And the color palette of Van Helsing seems to be slick, Charlie's Angels tie-in video game silver. 
And I guess at the end of the day, that's slightly easier on the eyes for two hours and ten minutes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Can, can we talk about a fun one, though? Yes, we can. We okay. can talk about Constantine. Hey! Which is the story of John Constantine. He is now an exorcist who has literally been to hell and back. Uh, his soul is sentenced to hell when he dies because he uh, committed suicide but was saved. So he literally saw hell. Uh, he's been deporting demons to get on good terms with God, yet God wants a self-sacrifice. And after the mysterious suicide of her twin sister, the detective Angela Dodson goes out to search for the truth. And together she and Constantine battle demons on Earth. The thing about this Constantine is that it is absolutely not the Constantine from the uh, from the comics. If you want a if you want a truer, not completely true, but a truer representation of that Constantine, watch Legends of Tomorrow on the CW, because much like in the comics, he's kind of just a guest star in that. Like he'll just be coming in and picking something up, it's like. Oh, I have to, don't worry about me, I have to go and eat Rasputin's heart and then go to another dimension so I can pick up the Phantom Stranger or something like that. Is uh, John Constantine of the comics and then the art blonde guy from the show, who had his own show for like a week. Yeah. Um, I would, in my opinion, to me he's one of those characters like Doctor Strange where he is better as a guest star. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, like, they can waltz in and be scene-stealers and be like, Well, you don't know about magic, all right. And and then they can kind of do their thing, whereas when you have to actually tell a story about them, not, not that there aren't good stories with those characters, but it seems like such an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Doctor Strange can be the, this awesome side character, but then when you actually have to write a movie about him, it's just... Uh, a movie, a comic, or anything. It's just like, oh god, like, what do we? Do, does he fight Cthulhu? Like, what's his deal? Does does he weak against anything? Hmm. Like, uh, do, like, what should we do with the Mad Servant? That hasn't aged well. Like, yeah. So it becomes this, uh, this whole thing. So, yeah. Whereas, I feel like Blonde Constant. Let's do it. Let's do it that way. Blonde Constantine. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's better as a side character. Uh, John Constantine in this was actually not a bad leading man. I think this was maybe the transition point to, wait, is Keanu Reeves actually good? Yeah. yeah. Um, something that appears in this movie is a a gun shaped like a crucifix, which also appears in uh, Alejandro Hodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. So there's a, some nerd trivia for you. Uh... The, this movie, some of the movie centers around the sphere of destiny, uh, which is what pierced, uh, Christ's side. It's not the spear of Odin, which means that Superman is okay. Okay. Uh, this film features Shia LaBeouf in a toler, tolerable role. He's, this isn't Transformer Shia LaBeouf. He's actually good in this. Yeah, and I mean, like he's he's nothing in this, but for Sheila Booth, that's yeah a praise. That that's the nicest thing I could say about this movie. Uh, I watched it and I forgot Sheila Booth was in it. Whereas that I've never done that before with a movie. What I usually do is I'll watch a movie, and if Sheila Booth is in it, 
I'll go find the person who suggested I watch the movie and I'll hit him in the back of the head without saying anything. Um, no, this, this and Lawless are the two movies with him that I don't hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tilda Swinton is in this. She plays Gabriel and Tilda Swinton is literally the best thing ever, I've realized. Literally? Yeah, she she's the David Bowie of acting, if that okay. makes any sense at all. Um, was it Patton when uh, when Bowie died? Patton said, uh, "Oh wow, Tilda Swinton's gonna be getting some weird looks when she walks down the street." <laughs> yeah, it is a very solid supernatural thriller. Uh, Mammon is mentioned in this movie, the the demon Mammon, and other people have pointed this out. So I'm not going to say that this is my observation. Other people have pointed this out. But when they say Mammon, it sounds like they're saying my mom. Oh, did they go like Mammon? Yeah. Like they pronounce it like that? <laughs> it's it's really pretty funny. Uh, there's a character who has a nightclub that you need to be psychic to get into. And his name is Papa Midnight. And he has a very Baron Samity vibe, which... I love Baron Samity. He's so awesome. Uh, at the ending, we see Lucifer portrayed by Peter Stormare, and he's fucking awesome in this movie. God, he's... you you mentioned this last episode. Yeah, but, I mean Peter Stormare is the reverse Lebouf Roxburgh, whatever. Um, not that he hasn't been in bad movies. He's never been bad in anything, sir. Like. Yeah. Like, you don't recall a bad Peter Stormare <laughs> appearance, right? No, not really. Um, yeah, he, and he's very creepy. Is he barefoot? He's barefoot. All the, and, most of the angel, all the angels are barefoot. And he shaved his eyebrows, which is one of those things that if, if like a bad guy or just some, a good guy with alopecia, if a character in something lacks eyebrows, it's one of those things that takes you a minute to notice. Yeah. Like you, like something looks off. Like the dude in Barry. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, he's uh, like, you know, bald as an egg, so uh, maybe it fits that. But it's not weird to see a bald guy or a clean-shaven guy. When the eyebrows are gone, it's like you're, it's like hearing a Canadian accent. Your brain takes a moment going, what? What's not quite right about this that I'm seeing yeah. hearing? Um, gosh, I, I mean, was that your take on Constantine? Yeah, it's, it's a good movie. It's just a good movie. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I don't necessarily want to oversell it. I wouldn't put it in my top ten. Uh, yeah, I could go a while before between viewings, let's say. But I do give props to Constantine for being, uh, I don't know, it's been a while since I saw those, those Swamp Thing movies, and like I only saw them in bits and pieces when I was a kid, so I don't want to dunk on them. Constantine's maybe the only like movie-ass movie out of this whole list. Yeah. The one that I look at and don't think, I could probably do a better movie than that. Uh, and... Over the years, I've not gotten better about a lot of things, but one thing I think I've gotten better about is the, like, fanishness being the, like, well, Jean Grey is supposed to be a redhead. Mm-hmm. And, it, like, 
being offended by that. Like the people who watch like Dawn of Justice and go, Batman would never use a gun. You go, that's the stupidest thing about that movie, which I like, by the way. Yeah. Um, and so for the longest time, I was kind of arms crossed about Constantine because I, this was not maybe Keanu's best period otherwise. Uh, the movie did not look great, like if you just saw a trailer or something. Yeah. Did not do huge business, was not especially well-reviewed. It was kind of a love-hate proposition for some people. That, nothing to suggest that it would be better than, like, Ghost Rider starring Nicolas Cage. Yeah. And uh, added to that, like, uh, I think back then I was, like, more into the Constantine character. So it's just, hey, this this is actually better than you might think. And I, my response was like, no. <laughs> and then when I finally watched the damn thing, I was like, oh, this this is good. Like a good movie, a three-star movie. Not without its issues. It feels have leaden in a way that movies from that era did, kind of the yeah. thoughts. Like... Mm-hmm. It wants to do the effects, but they're not quite there yet. So it looks like a like a better version of R.I.P.D. Yeah, <laughs> with the monsters. Um, it's it's a little too interior, a little slow. Like they've talked about doing a sequel, and if they do, I would lean more into the energy of like Gabriel and Lucifer. Not make it a joke, but like. You could really get even weirder with this material if you wanted to. So it's maybe a little heavy in that sense. And, you know, probably no longer than it needs to be or no shorter, whatever it is I mean to say. But, man, the stuff that works really works. Like, the, the cosmology is surprisingly consistent. It's a good-looking movie. Yeah. Like, one thing that unites most of the others we're going to be talking about is that they look either shitty or boring. Constantine has uh, Constantine has a design element mm-hmm. to it. The cross gun, even if they stole it, is cool. The, like, the fly crawling under a guy's eyelid is, like, a nice touch, you know? You can still find new ways to be creepy with the human body. And the designs for the angels in particular, like... Tilda Swinton, it's easy to make Tilda Swinton look good. Like, it's, it's easy to dress her up, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, her design as Gabriel is just awesome looking. Just, like, black straps. Like, totally, even for her, androgynous. Like, the kind of, like, hair that looks like it's made out of a dessert. She's just a complete, like... Best version of a Final Fantasy character I've ever seen mm-hmm. in real life. I can't believe there aren't more cosplays of her, to be honest. Yeah. And yeah, and then Stormare is like like one scene wonder when he finally appears. Literally like shimmies down for midair, like his little tootsies come on screen first. He gets all the best lines. I always misquote it, but when he's quoting, uh, threatening John, like... I've been waiting for this. I've got a whole amusement park planned for you. Yeah. Then when God doesn't want to let him go, he drags him. And, like, John won't go any further because God's holding him. So it's like 
they're on like a tile floor and it starts like bunching up like a Bugs Bunny like burrow thing. Yeah, and John flips him off. Yeah, and John flips him off, and then when he takes the like he has to heal John so he can get him later. So he pulls the cancer out of his lungs, and so it just comes out as like two black lumps in his hands, and like it's like it's the opposite of what I said about League. Like every decision they make is the cool one. What, hey, like, what would it look like if you pulled cancer out of your body? Hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's just, it, it is, again, not a great movie. It's the definition of a pleasant surprise, I think. Yes. So, it, I don't mean to mouth off about Constantine, but this is, like, the only movie we're talking about today that I like. Mm. So forgive me if I gush there for a minute. It's It's solid. It's... It's exactly what it should be. Mm. We we now go on to a movie that many people will recognize the main character, even if they don't know the uh, source material. V for Vendetta. Mm-hmm. We for Vendetta. <laughs> we for Vendetta. You beat me, boy. Uh, he has to fight his enemy, uh, the Viper, who's coming to clean his windows. Oh, of course. Yes. His mare. His mirror, yeah. All those windows with VS. Yeah. It's the story of Evie Hammond, who's played by Natalie Portman. Uh, She has an important part in bringing down the fascist government that is taking control of a futuristic Great Britain. Her life is saved by a man in a guy, Falk's Mask, who is simply called V, played by Hugo Weaving. And she basically learns V's past after a time and decides to help him bring down the government, basically, and the shape it is in now. Um, it loses a lot of the subtleties uh, that the Thatcher-Britain original source material had, mm-hmm. since in this they are straight-up fascists, like straight-up Nazis. Um, so, again, it's, a it's hard to do Alan Moore because of the subtleties. Uh, it does have I John... Mean, I don't mean to interrupt you. I feel like movies can be perfectly subtle in their own way, like, often beautifully so. I feel like they, they always botch the adaptations because they are trying to be subtle in their own way. Mm-hmm. And... If something like Constantine works, it's because, like, hey, here's something that was fun in a comic book. Why don't we take some of that DNA and then create something that is fun in the medium of film? Yeah. And, like, they're not married to anything. It's like, what can we do that would, you know, translate... And when they do the Alan Moore stuff, like, so much gets lost. And it's not its not because, like, oh, well, movies are too stupid to do Alan Moore justice. I'm like, no, I think maybe you conceivably could make a good movie off one of his books. No one ever has. And they're probably going to stop trying at this point. But it's because they try to make it, like, so... They focus on details to the exclusion of narrative to yeah. the extent that yes. Alan never actually did as com- complicated as like the composition of his stories is they also tend to 90 percent of the time 
they are still very readable and propulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they try and like get the details right. They try to be as clever as he is, which for me that that's one of the many reasons like the Watchmen HBO series doesn't work is Alan is enough of a virtuoso <clears throat> to like write a story and then do like those text pieces in between. Yeah. And so the Watchmen TV series feels like they started writing the text pieces. It took 16 times longer than they thought. And they went, oh, God, we have to tell a story, too. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, it's nothing but cool details. And you forgot to do the part where you put those in sequence where they created narrative. Mm. Um, so uh, that, for me, is, like, the uh, not like film isn't worthy of them. It just seems like they're tr- they're missing the woods for the trees when they try to adapt them. Yeah. Uh, the film features John Hurt as the ultimate bad guy, like the the big, big bad brother. guy. Big brother. Big brother, yeah. basically. Big brother. Yeah. And he's he's good in that role. Like, John Hurt is just good. Yeah, I, I will... John Hurt, the greatest actor of all time. Yes. So, yeah, this movie has that going for it. Uh, v, at one point, with his trademark knives, cuts a guy's pants down. Like, his, he slices the suspenders and the pants drop. Like, I had to get back. Maybe I like the movie. That's the type of movie we're dealing with. Uh, Hugo Weaving is actually good as V, but the problem with it is, since he's wearing a mask, he bobs his head around when he talks like every actor does when they're wearing a mask. I don't think they do that on purpose, but they think they need to. Well, it, here's the thing. If you are wearing, like, a prosthetic mask, like, Ron Perlman is the greatest mask actor, of yeah. course. Like, you find a way to, like, do it, you know, communicate, even though your expressiveness is cut down. When you are wearing uh, a, a mask, as in something that covers your face, then, yeah, the best actors in the world, like... Hugo Weaving is one of the greatest actors alive. Willem Dafoe is one of the greatest actors alive. But when Dafoe has to talk as Green Goblin, it's like it doesn't show up on the podcast, but you can picture it right there. Well, here's what I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. It's just like, freaking, like, settle down back tonight. Yeah. Um, I, I do not like Portman as Evie. Just gonna, yeah. Um, she, it, Natalie Portman's not bad. She's been good in stuff. She's even been, like, I hate Black Swan, but I actually do think she does a good job in that movie. Yeah. But she's she's not, like, foolproof or anything. I You don't pick up, like, a movie and go, like, oh, she's in this? Yeah. She's, she's fine. She's stunningly okay in this. Yes. Yeah. Um, talking about, like, Anonymous, I can understand why people in Anonymous like this, because they're essentially trying to not violently emulate it, but emulate it in spirit, which, and that that goes into another thing, V, V killing, I'm pretty sure that, uh, he kills people in this movie, and in the book, uh, there's a part where they go over, like, should the hero be able to kill people if he's the hero? And Alan Moore decides, 
No. Wait, he doesn't kill in the book? I think he... I don't know. I, I think... I'll... I thought that he did, and uh, always with that lens of like, well, he's killing like the cops and the black shirts and or the brown shirts, like. Uh, but I, I because the, believe it or not, the the original story is actually slightly more, morally complex than the movie. Um, I thought that was one of the things that was introduced that like the, was right. Or was on the side of right and clearly fighting like the bad guys, but he was a legit terrorist. Yeah, and I don't. I never got the impression that he like went out of his way to hurt people, but he he's somebody who would like absolutely like kill some cops or yeah, you know, no, like never never civilians, no no like Dark Knight Joker stuff, of course. Mm -hmm. But V absolutely came off as a character who was like. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll kill the right people. I mean, wait, doesn't he kill tons of people in the first volume? Like, he's getting revenge. Actually, yeah, he renewing. blows up a guy. Yeah, like, which factors into this. I mean, Alan Moore is, like, an unabashed, left-leaning anarchist. You know, he, he talks about it quite a bit. But he had, he had always said he intended the comic to show two consistent uh, political principles where you had like an actual authoritarian state and an actual anarchist hero mm -hmm. and to show that obviously he sympathized with the latter but like there the hero could do things that were inexcusable the regime could lead to things that were nominally good in some ways for yeah. some people so meant to be an actual discourse of ideas and it, it does seem like the movie flattens that to just, instead of being like the battle between like left and right or control and chaos, it becomes a battle of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And unlike those first examples, those concepts don't actually exist. <laughs> so yeah. it's at once easier and much more boring to tell a story like that. Yeah. Uh... Another good player in this movie is Stephen Fry, who is just delightful. Uh, he's good in anything. Wonderful, big, gay dynamo. Um, he is big. He, uh, he hosts a satirical talk show in this film. And uh, he, on the talk... Not a talk show, a variety show. And on the variety show... They do this stupid Benny Hill bit, like the the fast, the, the chasing and the yakety sacks, and it lets you know that this movie was made by Americans, because no one in England likes Benny Hill. Well, that's that's an exaggeration of sorts. It's like saying no one in America likes the Three Stooges. Yeah, like it's perfectly acceptable for what it is, but. It does come off as something where, like, uh, anyone outside of England goes, like, my God, the English act all smart, but then they like Benny Hill. It's like, yeah, they liked him for a while in the 60s and 70s. Like, Carol Burnett sketches look kind of stupid today, too. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's like, this is off topic, but I, I love the... Uh, Oh, God, I can't remember if it was what a cartoon or something, but they, 
uh, no, it might have been struggle session. They talked about uh, Japan, how it's like Japan is so weird. It's like we went to Japan and like you can buy like panties and vending machines. Their food is so weird. Oh my god, they have like mascots walking around. It's so weird. And you're like, no, it's not. It's actually like super accommodating and kind of like normal and work a day in most regards. And I love the description they said. It would be like if a Japanese tourist came to America, went to a porn shop, and then just pointed at like dildos and whatever, yeah. you know, handcuffs or whatever, and went like, oh my god, Americans are crazy. They're into this. I can just walk in and buy this. Yeah. <laughs> There's a line in this movie, uh, it, that makes absolutely no sense unless you've read the book. <laughs> There's a line where uh, V is kind of scaring a security guard, like making noises so he doesn't know where he is. The security guard takes out his gun and says, You better show your face or I'll go Storm Saxon on your ass. And for those of you who don't know, Storm Saxon is a kind of the racist Buck Rogers yeah. in the books. What a. What... And, like, in the foreground, Alan will try to be subtle, but then in, like, the fake media he creates, like, Storm Saxon is one, is along with, like, the cabaret. It's one of the more cartoonish elements in the... Oh, I think mm. it works, but it's, you know, it's, like, a, like, serious stories going on in the foreground, then in the background there's a TV going, like, get over here, you filthy yellow mongrel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is him getting delayed on with a trowel when he wants to. Yeah. They do the uh, the woman in the in room four, I believe it's called the woman in room four. Uh, that storyline is kept, but uh, the glorious shot of Evie in the rain, just you know, letting the water wash over, letting the sense of freedom and joy wash over her naked body. Uh, they don't do that because. Uh, Portman refused to do a nude scene. Which, I'm not gonna knock an actress for... Uh, like, that. it would be shitty to come at that the other direction. Like, shut up and show them already. Yeah. Like, if somebody doesn't want to, I think some of the Game of Thrones actresses had, like, similar clauses once they had a little bit of clout on the show. Yeah, Lena Headey, when she does that, the High Sparrow's shame walk, Yeah, she used a body double. But... That alone, that again, maybe shows like what you can do in one medium, but you can't in another. Uh, like you can just draw Evie. Yeah. And uh, also worth noting, she's gone through like absolute nightmarish torment at that point in the book, so she looks like, like forgive me if it's tasteless, but like an Auschwitz victim. Yeah. And like she stands in the rain and it's cleansing, and it's like, I'm sorry, like even if Natalie Portman like you know, goes easy for a couple days and then shaves her head, she's she's never going to look like she just got out of a, a prisoner camp. Mm -hmm. so, um, and it, by the way, this thing of, like, you can get away with one thing, we'll get to it, of course. This is not a spoiler, but, like, in Watchmen, in the Watchmen comic, you can just draw Dr. Manhattan's totally unremarkable dick. It just Just, like... Two lines like Matt Groening's signature heading on Homer's head, just zoop zoop. There, it's there. You see it maybe seven times over the course of the book. Every now and again, he's facing towards camera, 
and let's not worry about it. Whereas whenever they like turn it into a movie or TV show, it's like, dude, who is the lucky guy or lady who got to put all those blue pixels on his on his dork? Yeah. Hey, dude. Dude, maybe they could, like, make it bigger if they're CGI'ing it anyways. Mm. And you, you get, like, hung up on that. It's like, yeah, I, I kind of like it better when it was just, like, the, the jupe-jupe from the comic. <laughs> a little less yeah. distracting. I feel like we could tell a story around it. The uh, the two other things in the, the V movie before we move on, uh, they introduce this thing, the St. Mary's virus, which I do not remember being in the book and fairly positive it wasn't in the book. And uh, in the movie, Evie doesn't become the new V when V dies. Yeah. Well, I mean, the book itself is open-ended. Uh, she does that, but it's, there's no implication that, like, she took on the mantle. Like, V is not Batman. Like, I don't think V was planning to have, like... He, he, this was, like, his thing. Like, he was going to collapse the regime... Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, there will always be a need for V somewhere on these rooftops. So you don't strictly need her to adopt the new mantle, but um, I don't know. Uh, do you have like closing thoughts on V? Not, not just like like trivia and stuff, but like not really. anything cohesive? It, not really. It's just, it's kind of not, not much of a movie. Yeah. I would agree there. It's, again, it's not atrociously bad it's not embarrassingly made um i i would more or less lump it in with from hell but whereas from hell was instantly forgotten and nobody talks about it v for vendetta like probably should have that reputation as like a okayish movie and it feels like instead it's become one of the most low-key iconic films of the last 15 mm-hmm. years or so and I don't know, it just, it doesn't hurt to look at or listen to, but it, it's just so silly, so, so like safe and flat. And the one that always sums it up for me was uh, when it was coming out, you had, uh, we probably, forgive me if we told this anecdote on like a previous episode, but yeah, you had like an episode of Wizard where they, an episode, an issue of Wizard where they interview Natalie Portman. And he went like, hey, they got an interview with Natalie Portman. And without looking over, I went, was it hard to shave your head for the role? And then you showed me the first question was, thanks for joining us. Was it weird having to shave your head all the way for the movie? Like, not word for word, which would have been insane. Yeah. But I was like, that's the movie. Like, like people remember it as that movie where Natalie Portman shaved her head. Yeah. Rather than, like, anything deeper and... Yeah, it turns out, like, British people can act. <laughs> like, like, that seems like such a, such a like, get-out-of-jail-free card for a movie when you're like, hey, you know, it was kind of terrible and stupid and everything, but, man, I could listen to Jeremy Irons read the phone book. You're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I, I know and I agree, but, like, just because, like, Robert Carlyle is in something doesn't mean it's good. He's awesome, but that doesn't mean Aragon's as awesome as he is. Yeah. So, like, that's something we figured out about 70 years ago. Like, oh, wait, when British people talk, it sounds cool. Yeah. That doesn't mean your movie is good. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that. sorry, that's, that's me in a nutshell for me. Like, 
sorry, just because John Hurt's talking doesn't mean I like your movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the for dummies version of yeah. the comic. Like, sorry, but there it is. Basically. Next, we move on to probably the most liked of any of these movies. Is it? I'm not being smarmy. Like, would I, you say this? I might say that. People do have a soft spot for this movie. Zack Snyder's Watchmen. Now, uh, one thing people say, people say, like, oh, even if you don't like the movie, the opening is so cool. Like, when they play Bob Dylan's The Time They Are, the times they are Changing, and they show basically everything in the, everything in the comics that you uh, would like to see in the movie, like uh, Mothman being taken away to the psych ward, or Dollar Bill dying uh, in the bank, uh, just stuff like, you know, Silhouette and her girlfriend... Uh, getting killed, they're, they're like just little things that happen in the book or are said in the book are thrown into the uh, opening, and I like the opening. Some people don't, some people do. I like the opening. Yeah, well, the opening is not bad, but the opening to Watchmen is like the opening to Up, where it gets a little bit oversold. And I sound like such a crank on this episode, which I don't even mind, but, you know, I hope people realize that there are things I like, we're just not talking about them. Yeah. Um, no, Up is a, like, fine movie, like it as well as anybody, but that opening scene to Up, like the pre-credits, the, the life that the two of them had, and you watch that, and it's it's good. Don't think many people would argue that it's bad. But the sheer number of people who are like, oh my god, like the, if the movie had ended at 10 minutes, it would already be the greatest animated film of all time. Like, my favorite love story, you ask? No, no, it's not Casablanca or The Princess Bride. It's those first 10 minutes of Up. I, I literally didn't know what love was. My psychiatrist had diagnosed me with what he calls the dark triad. But Pixar movies taught me how to feel <laughs> empathy. And you're, you're just like, it's a nice scene. Like, it's as good as one of those Oscar shorts that they release seven of every year. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's cute. It's touching. It's a the, it's a nice economical way of explaining why Ed Asner is sad at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. But, like, again, I'm not saying don't like it, but, like, like calm down a little bit. Uh, it's not that hard to show, like... A husband and a wife, like, looking sad on a couch. <laughs> um, that, to me, is the opening to the Watchmen movie, where I'm like, yeah, well, like, it, it's it's fine. If you want to see the bad version of this, then watch the opening to uh, Justice League to yeah. see, like, the Zack Snyder, like, making fun of his earlier movie. I'm not sure what that yeah. was. Uh, release the Snyder Cut. <laughs> release the Snyder Cut. So, <clears throat> anyways... Yeah, that Watchmen opening, though, before I saw it, that was the one where people are like, God damn, like, oh shit, even if, like, you don't like the rest of it, like, okay, no one's saying it's better than the comic, but damn, I'm glad they made it just for that opening with the, with the song, and then when, when I finally watched it, I was like, oh, that was fine, yeah, it's, it's like what I always say about, like, the, the Walking Dead pilot, like, 
oh, even if you don't like the show, watch the pilot. It's amazing, and I watch it, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. That's this. It's like, that was the best part of the entire movie by far. And I finish it, and I'm like, oh, so it's a downhill from here, and I've got another three hours? Yeah. Yeah. Um, some random notes about this movie. The, the characters, all of the characters are just humans, except for, uh, Ozymandias is human, but he's trained himself to be perfection, and Dr. Manhattan is, of course, a god. But in this movie, they make the characters way, way, way too strong, just for, I don't know why. The characters, when I say, when I say strong, I mean, like, they are only slightly weaker than Ricky from Story of Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> from Alan Moore is the story of Ricky. Yeah. Um, that's that's a really fair point. And uh, again, like to, to me, that's the difference between like bad fan, good fan. Bad fan looks at the Silk Spectre costume and goes like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's diaphanous in the comic. This shit's skin tight. What's she even wearing? That's not what she looks like. Yeah. Like, that. that's bad fan. That's the who gives a shit fan. Yeah. Whereas with this, when it's like, hey, like, Night Owl and, uh, you know, Rorschach and basically everybody are superhuman. Like, like the, the as we record this this morning, the, uh, the mountain lifted half a ton as he's now officially the world's strongest man. Um, that's superhuman. This is more superhuman than that. Mm-hmm. And th- that's not going like, oh, they need, he's OP. It's not that it bothers me like that. It's just, doesn't that fundamentally violate the premise? Like, Night Owl is like a tough guy. Like, he could take you in a fight. Like, knows how to box, knows karate and everything. Mm-hmm. But he's like an older guy who's getting a little fatter and would probably lose to any of the other watchmen. Yeah, yeah. Here, no, here he could just, just, like, jump out of his plane, fall 30 feet, like, beat the shit out of people, punch through walls. And again, like, the idea of watchmen is, like, no, there, there are no superhumans of any description except the one, and his arrival is a world-altering disaster. Like, it actually does matter that the characters are somewhat mundane. Even Ozymandias, it's it's like the Captain America thing. Like, he's not superhuman. He's just as strong as a human can be. Yeah. That's Veidt's thing. Like, the most physically amazing human to have ever lived, but still arguably human, even with the bullet-catching mm. shit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, M- Matt Frewer plays I forgot he was in this. Yeah, that's all. That's awesome. He's that's awesome. great in this. Uh he plays I don't know what how you want to pronounce it, Malak, Malik. I usually went with Malak, but that's probably yeah. wrong. Uh, Malak. They, they they even give him the ears, which look a, a little bit silly, but he he pulls it off. He does a really good he's he's good in this. He really is. Yeah. Um they keep what is probably... I would, I would say he's better in this than he was in the Generation X TV movie. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, they have the best line by Rorschach, uh, which is, This city screams of me like a, 
a slaughterhouse full of retarded children, which is just, it just shows you Alan Moore's writing, like what he can get up to. Um, in this, it's interesting, they purposely make it more violent because... Dr. Manhattan doesn't vaporize you, he explodes you. Which is grosser. Yeah. It, it, which, vaporizing is almost more disturbing, but this is more unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, comedian, they get his scar wrong, and I'm not being, that sounds so pedantic, but the fact is, the scar is supposed to look like a smile. That's why he's the comedian. Instead, it's just like a... He, like, he has to walk through life with that smirk on his face. Yeah. Instead, it's just like the the way Bond looked in the book. Oh, he just has, like, Asgar. Yeah, this is what it is. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, that is... That is a nasty-ass scar. Like, yeah. the, uh, like, the Heath Ledger Joker has nothing on the comedian where it's, it's like a trench carved in his face. Mm. Um, I... If, Negan didn't want to go through that every morning. I guess I kind of get it. Like you, you could tone it down, but yeah, like the fundamentally, it's meant to like be an extension of his, his smile. I would think is the point. Mm. So. The uh, again, in the, in the movie, they're called the Watchmen. They are not called the Watchmen in the book. The first yeah, team, the not... first team is the Minutemen, and then the second team is going to be called the Crime Busters. The, and there is no third team. It's not like it's not a team called the Watchmen. Like, oh no, the Watchmen and the Teen Titans fought because they had a misunderstanding. Yeah, it's like no, it's like who watches the Watchmen? The centuries, if not millennia, old like aphorism, and then Moore does a pun on. Minutemen, American Minutemen, Watchmen, Watchmakers. Yeah. Like, there, there's one team that is formed for a publicity thing for, like, a couple years mm-hmm. in the 40s. That's it. They are not a superhero team. Mm-hmm. Some of them kind of hate each other. Yeah. Some people have pointed this out. It's a, it's essentially a shot-by-shot adaption but it's also way over-sanitized, leaves a lot of stuff out, and kind of doesn't get the point. Yeah. There's... It's it's wonderfully cast. Uh, there's little bits like uh, Ozymandias, who in the book they say he hides his German accent from the public so they will trust him more. Mm-hmm. And they do that in the movie, like... When he's talking to Night Owl, you'll hear, like, a slight German accent. But when he's talking to, like, Lee Iacocca, straight-up American accent. Yeah. Uh, the costumes look way too Tim Burton-y. Yeah. The sounds... Which, I don't mean to constantly interject, because I know this is already going to be a long episode. But, again, that that's one of the nice touches about the, uh, the Watchmen comic, is that nobody actually looks good yeah that's that's not a knock on dave gibbons like not that the designs are bad but like the characters who look cool it's manhattan um rorschach 
arguably the comedian is you know if you understand he's like a gun-toting bad guy lunatic mm-hmm. he's, he's he's like the most frank miller design in the book then that's fine other than that it's like no like like laurie looks kind of stupid in the costume she hates the costume that's that's acknowledged like dan I, I like the hood but the whole point is it looks like a decent suit but then he's he has like his weeble body in the middle yeah so like that's the effect they're going for like hey what what if like adam west batman but you know adam west around his look well period maybe yeah uh and uh, again, the movie just does away with that. With like, what if it was just a bunch of body armor, bro? Yeah. yeah. There's the fact that they don't use the fake alien squid in the movie. They make it appear. Uh, Ozymandias makes it appear as if Doctor Manhattan is doing this. And I didn't like that. Like, I know why they did it because it'd kind of be too much for the movie. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't make sense because. Dr. Manhattan is an American agent, so it would cause anti-American sentiment. Like, the same way, it it would be like 9-11. Like, there would be America-phobia. I see what you mean, and uh, there was a decent interview, or probably several, with, I think it's David S. Hayter, the uh, screenwriter slash voice actor, who did this, like, kind of work for hire, and did a a tolerable job that's a like i don't like this movie at all and i also have to admit it could be much worse yeah uh but yeah he the way he explained it he said like uh the rule is that audiences will only accept one piece of magic and it can be a big piece of magic so like in the in star wars the force is magic Mm -hmm. so you can do whatever you want as long as it relates back to the force Fans actually get annoyed when it's like, oh, and Watto can block the force. They're like, what? How? What the hell? Yeah. Like that is so you you play, you know, that that's everything. Like, I don't care if vampires are in a movie, but follow your own rules. Yeah. And so having Dr. Manhattan is like, okay, that's fine, but it's the only piece of magic in your story. If you have Dr. Manhattan and the squid, it's too silly. And for what it's worth, as somebody who loves Watchmen and teaches Watchmen and thinks it's amazing, the ending is not the single best part. When they when he's going like, oh well, the we got some psychics so that it could release like an EKG blast and blow up people's heads. You're like, so psychics exist in Watchmen? Like you're you're like you're going for realism, but then you're kind of getting into forty and times territory with that stuff. Mm-hmm. It is not like sanctified that you must include the squid but this fix doesn't work for exactly the reason jeremy mentions wouldn't that just make the problem worse yeah uh my closing thoughts on that on watchmen are that good performances jackie earl haley is perfect as rorschach and there are a lot of especially at the beginning there are a lot of cameos by famous people in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, and it just reminded me of Forrest Gump. Like a kind of a... Fair enough, yeah. Kind of a superhero version of Forrest Gump. Um, we move on to uh, the last two. We're in the home stretch. Uh, try to get through them quickly. Um, 
The Killing Joke, the cartoon movie, uh, this is just a disaster. It, this was this had the potential for something, and I think it was badly misjudged. Yeah, very badly misjudged. It is so gross that Bruce and Barbara fuck on the top of a building. They 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 just raw dog it in. It's Jesus. so awful. Yeah, your description's bad enough, so imagine that would actually include it. I mean... Okay, should I take it from here? Because I'm happy to dunk on this movie. <laughs> I'll say a few more things. I think it's nice that they got the original voices, like Mark Hamill, uh, Kevin Conroy, and Tara Strong. The animation, I don't like the new... Uh, Warner Brothers cartoon animation. Yeah, it's it's so flat, and this it could turn into like a, a whole other hour where we talk about like I miss cartoons from the '90s. They felt warmer back then. Like I'm not trying to say that necessarily. Um, I just feel like you look at the old Batman the animated series that set the standard for all of this, and some episodes look like trash. Yeah. Like, go go watch, like, an episode, even one with, like, good writing, and you'll be like, man, this this is some ugly garbage. And then another episode, Tokyo Movie Shinsha, yeah. produced most likely will look like theatrical quality. Um, and no better example of this, go look up the Clayface two-parter. The first, like, Clayface, uh, Feet of Clay, part one, atrociously ugly to the point where it almost takes you out of the show. Clayface Part 2, rapturously beautiful. Yeah. Like, the, I, I think everyone agrees that, like, his, his quick change at the end is, like, the, the animation highlight of the entire series. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you, you have ones that look like a million bucks and ones that look like terribly tiny tune adventures flat. Yeah. Um, it's just whatever animation studio uh, happened to get the assignment... It's the same with Gargoyles and a million other shows. But I feel like the the designs were remarkably consistent. Like, mm. it, was, it was a good-looking show even when it wasn't a good-moving show. And I'm with you with, like, the new adaptations, be it this or Killing Joke or Flashpoint, they go a little more anime. I think they were, they were trying to go a little bigger with that one. Yeah. But I'm with you because they do them, and they look so flat. Yeah, and that that's the that that's the feeling like they stay on model. It's technically solid animation, but it, it's of no visual interest whatsoever. And it's, it's so instead of going like, "Hey guys, you know some episodes were like a ten and some were a two. What if I could just promise you a solid gold five every single time?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, his yeah, the voice the voice acting is the only reason for this to exist. Yes. Which like when it was promoted, it was the, the ultimate Joker story with the original, like Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill return. That's right, the Mark Hamill. Supposedly retired, but he came back for this. And then he does it, he's he's fantastic in this, of course. It's Mark freaking Hamill. But then you finish it and you you go, What'd you think? Oh well, Mark Hamill remains a thoroughly qualified Joker. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 barely feature length. 
Yeah. There is a weird subplot about Batgirl beating up a uh, mafioso guy that's stalking her. And she beats him up really bad. And then she retires from crime fighting like that's all it takes. And when she beats him up, I don't mean like, you know, a pummeling, like, uh, but I mean like how Ralphie beats up Scott Farkas in A Christmas Story. (laughs) I'm I'm not kidding. Uh, I realized something about, Leslie Lee III from Struggle Session mentioned this. There are a lot of amusement parks in Gotham, like abandoned ones. (laughs) Uh, uh, in Joker's whole plan the carnies just go along with this I don't know why that's something that always bugged me yeah in fairness this is true of the comic too like the carnies are just on board yeah so I I don't know what to make of that but you know that's that's the one thing in this well not the one thing but there's some shit in here where you're like, man, they ruined that comic. And there's other stuff where you're like, man, what was Alan Moore thinking that day? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this origin has always been just so-so for me. Um, it, it's fine. Like, it, it's fine for what they're doing, but it's just the Joker doesn't have an origin. Yeah. I like I like this. I like the Arthur Fleck version. I like the Jack Napier version. Mm-hmm. And... But, but none of them are definitive. It's not like Batman where it's like the origin is the only thing that matters. I actually like... The, I never thought of that before, but that's true. I like how the Joker is the anti-origin. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. There's a line in this I really like uh, by Joker's wife. Uh-huh. Um, he's saying like, oh, I, I wish I could provide for you and the baby... She's pregnant. I wish I could provide for you and the baby. And she says, Honey, we don't need money. We don't need money to be happy. You're making me laugh and you're great in the sack, and that's all I can hope for. And I always love that line because it gives us the indication that Joker is just amazing in that. You know what? I would have honestly have figured, even if they hadn't said anything. Yeah. Like he just has a, like, honestly, Joker. I'm getting a real tall dick vibe from that. <laughs> um, Joker's got some BDE. Okay. So, well, let's just, I know we're running long, but let's pause and run through that real quick. Rogue's Gallery. How do you think they stack up in bed? Go, go, go. Um, Man but, and woman. Uh, I don't know. Penguin, um, surprisingly good. Uh, oh, he'd be, he'd be like Jack Black or something? Yeah. Like he'd have that energy to him? Okay. Two-Face? Okay. Two-Face would be surprisingly flat. He'd be like a Wall yeah. Street bro. Yeah. He'd have the car, and then it would be like, that was fine. Yeah. Um, okay, Joker we know is great. It's been verified. I, you know, I'm not going to question the word of a dead woman. Riddler, uh, depends on which Riddler you're talking about. <laughs> um, Honestly, Riddler is one of my favorite characters. I'm guessing he sucks. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, moving on from that. No, no, no. You didn't mention Mad Bat, Tweedledee, and Tweedledum. <laughs> Film Freak. <laughs> Calendar Man. <laughs> uh, we have Calendar Man is the only Batman villain that is both incel and wall cell. <laughs> we have an after-credit sequence where Batgirl becomes Oracle, and this is just... 
If that's just fan service. Yeah, which, uh, I mean, given that this is a direct-to-video or VOD uh, movie about Batman and DC Comics, it's fine that it's fan service, but, it, yeah, she, like, cracks her knuckles. and goes, like, time to get to work. Which, uh, I don't know, I, I don't feel really qualified as an able-bodied guy to talk about, like, how Barbara Gordon's presented. But it is one of those weird elements in uh, comic books where it's like, we, we can fix anybody. Like, we, we can turn the, you know, you know Cyborg? Like, the character Cyborg? Yeah. We can turn him into a cyborg, but we don't have the technology to let Barbara walk. Yeah. Sorry, they have that in Archer, but not here. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's just one of those those things where, like, in a more grounded story, even if Batman was just, like, off in its corner, as, like, it's the Batman universe, if you did, like, Christopher Nolan, Batgirl, and she couldn't walk, you'd buy it. Yeah. But as soon as it exists in a world where all these other things do, where it's like, why doesn't the Flash simply run back in time and stop the Joker from shooting her? It's like, yeah. that. that's when the gravitas of having her there becomes weird. Um, I don't know what to make of this thing, because we would have to do like a whole separate episode to talk about The Killing Joke. Mm-hmm. And honestly, at the same time, I'm not even sure. The Killing Joke's like 30 years old, maybe it had it today. Um... There's a lot to like about the Killing Joke comic, and there are also things where sometimes I'll be a little hand-waved with people going like, oh, like, Watchmen's misogynist. Like, no, it has misogynists in it. Yeah. Work is not condoning them. Killing Joke gets into some territories it probably didn't need to and does stuff that's... I don't think it reflects, like, the ugliness of the creators. I think it was just, like, atonal, and even they have, like kind of repented on how it actually turned out. Which makes it such a weird choice to do as an adaptation. On the one hand, it's like so legendary, you'd have to do it sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it would be like adapting Huckleberry Finn. No question, it's like a part of the canon. There's a couple things we're going to have to deal with if we do this. Yeah. So it was like, okay, how do we adapt The Killing Joke while fixing the killing joke and it just seems like every this has become like the refrain in this episode every choice seemed like the wrong one and it's like wait 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 instead of giving barbara like making her a sex object of abuse for the joker how about she also has consensual sex with bruce you're like what the fuck are you talking about like yeah it's like hey guys it's okay the joker fucked her she fucked batman it's such like a weird thing that maybe made sense in their head or on a chart that they drew. Like it does not translate at all. The first half of the movie is just like filler. So it's like a bad story that somehow makes the good story that follows it worse. And then the weird thing about her, like she, it's like, well, she got, you know, paralyzed but she became Oracle. I like that that happened to the character in the comic. Like, that was fine. And by the way, people forget that Batgirl wasn't in the comics when this happened. She hadn't been around for a while. Like, they didn't know what to do with her. So that's why they were a little cavalier about letting Alan, you know. It wasn't like he crippled Robin or something. <laughs> oh, wait, that was another comic. Oh, it was Denny O'Neill who yeah. did that. Yeah. Hey, but... Frankie, here's a guy to kill Robin. 
Yeah, and and so it, it's it's a weird note to end on because it's like, well, she went through like the worst thing she could go through, but when she falls, man, she gets back up, and a wheelchair is not going to stop her from fighting crime. And in a different context, I'm like, fine, cool, good message, I'm down with that. But but it's trying to make the killing joke nice is. I, I don't know how you do it. it it's like a, it's like editing a S- South Park the musical for TV. Mm-hmm. Like when they do that with movies where it's like, hey guys, we're going to have mall rats, but uh, no swearing and in fact, no innuendo. Like, how long is the movie? Like five minutes? What are you going to do with it? That's what you're going to do with Killing Joke. Like, if you don't like the nastiness and the brutality and the darkness of Killing Joke, that's totally valid. But that probably just means you don't like the killing joke. Mm-hmm. Most people I know who hate it, like to their credit, they just hate it. They just think it's trash. They don't go like, oh, it was so close to being good. It was 90% of the way there. If only we could tweak the sexual politics slightly. Yeah. It's like you're either on board or you're not. And trying to do like the, the nice version of it. I know this is an R rating, but still it's like, you guys want the PG-13 version of Salo? Yeah. No, it just doesn't quite click, I'm afraid. The last one we're doing is... I'm going to get through it quickly. Um, <laughs> like we it, said about that one. Yeah. It's my fault. It is... Uh, it's a very interesting pick here because it was made by Alan Moore. It's called Showpieces. It's also known as Jimmy's End. Uh, it's an anthology of three short films, and they're liked by... The Northampton Netherworld. Uh, I watched the theatrical version this time. I've seen both versions. I watched the theatrical version this time, so stuff some stuff is cut out. Uh, it's a story of kind of a lout named Jimmy ascending into the afterlife, but it's all presented as a nightclub. Uh, it's very intriguing from the start, and the the dialogue is fun and natural, while also being very poetic. Uh, at the beginning, there's an autoerotic asphyxiation scene, which is very startling. It's it's a woman doing it. It's very startling. And is actually a bit misogynistic. Um, the movie itself is purposefully slow going, which yeah. I like. Alan does not worry about wasting your time past a certain point. Yeah. I realize that... In his career, I mean. I realize that Alan likes nightclubs and cabarets and stuff like that. Uh, There's a character, Bobbles the Clown, who is just completely unpleasant. He's an unpleasant British clown, so how is he not played by Reese Shearsmith? Uh, Yeah, he's just just horrifying. Uh, Jimmy is almost thrown to Apophis. The Egyptian eater of souls, which I find interesting. Everyone is human, but also inhuman. Like they have human bodies, but they're like ghosts and demons and such. He's pardoned and basically becomes a lost soul, uh, kind of akin to Matthew the Raven, but in human form. Uh, it's essentially a horror movie, which I really like. Um, it's. It's very intense, which is why I consider it a horror movie. Alan himself plays God, 
also known as Frank Medicin, and his partner is Satan. Uh, Robert Goodman, played by Robert Goodman, who plays Nicky Matchbright, who is also Satan. They're a comedy team in this nightclub. And what I like about it is that God is smarter than the devil, which has really never been done in fiction. Yeah. And I really like that. Well, I I won't say it's never been done in fiction. It's arguably true in the Bible. But, um, no, that's something I would note if you hadn't, like, it's so easy to write the devil as like, hey, all the saints are upstairs, but we got all the artists. And, like, like I actually like Garth Ennis, but that would be, like, an absolute Garth Ennis, like, twist. Like, what if the devil was the smart guy? What if God's like a fuddy-duddy or out of touch or some shit, and the devil's just slick as hell? Yeah. And then this turns it on around on its head where it's like, well, no. Like, if God exists, then he's probably pretty smart. And the devil is the little creep who thinks he's smarter than he is. I mean, like, if you're playing, like, within the the old school framework of the story. Yeah. That's literally what the devil is. He's, he's fun to talk about, and the devil's sexy and cool and has all the best jokes, and God makes you follow the rules. But no, if you're going to anthropomorphize these concepts, like, yeah, the devil kind of sucks. Seems like an idiot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a beautiful line in this movie where, uh, I think we'll end on this. There's a beautiful line in this movie where, uh, uh, Alan as God medicine uh, he's talking to Match Bright and he says you know people like me more look at me I've got I've got golden skin hair like the Big Bang and look at you you look like death's prolapsed rectum yeah. And it just shows you the the wordsmith that Alan is. Yeah, it's it's a good one. And it leads to my favorite exchange in the thing. I do like the Aporphus bit, actually. But I love when the two of them are talking and the devil tells him, like, Look, I don't have to take this. For, I don't have to take this forever. And God, you know, Metatron, Alan, goes like, Well, now, actually, I am going to keep saying it. And you are going to keep taking it. <laughs> Which, again, if your god is like... No, actually, you are you are going to put up with this forever. <laughs> so, yes, that was my slog through all of the Alan Moore-based movies. Uh, I hope you guys liked this. Whoever's listening, I hope you guys liked this. <laughs> liked my sacrifice. Um, and, yeah, and that's the end of the show. Uh, Nathaniel... Uh, where can we find you? I have uh, my uh, show, The Pretendium Compendium, which I do with my good friend Randy, where we talk uh, kind of about Dungeons and Dragons, but we mostly use that to open the door to fantasy and weirdness and uh, 80s aesthetics and whatever else really seems to be tickling our fancy that week. Now, you say you talk about fantasy. Oh, uh, I do say that. You do say that. Now, I just need you to know... If you do not dedicate an entire full-length episode to the film Your Highness, then I have absolutely no interest in listening to your podcast. I, I hope you know that. Damn, I might actually get around to that sooner or later. Yeah. Um, as for me, you can find me on my 
YouTube channel, Ringo Phonebonius Jones, which is spelt just how it is above this uh, podcast. Um, if you like this, then like and comment. I would like to know your feedback. And, uh, yeah, well, would you like to say goodbye, Nathaniel? Goodbye, Nathaniel, and uh, I guess I did have fun talking on this one after all, even if it was mostly negative. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I've been Jeremy, and that's all I have to say. If you can, please get your charities for those disenfranchised in these still troubled times. An example might be the Oprah Project, which helps black trans people with food, shelter, and other needs of life. Also, support the Trevor Project, a mental health hotline for LGBTQ youths in trouble. Uh, as for Nathaniel, you can find him at the Pretendium Compendium, his own podcast, where he talks about Dungeons and Dragons and other fantasy fare. Uh, if you would like to see more of me, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Jeans, which is J-E-E-M-S. You can find me on my Tumblr, which is also Jeans, my TikTok, Jeans84, my Twitter, the show's Twitter is at Intolerable, and I'm at my planet is J. And you can find me on my Instagram at at my planet is Jeremy. Uh, we are available on Anchor, SoundCloud, Spotify, and several other podcast platforms. Now, on with the show.